You're listening to Houston. We have a podcast where we talk everything and anything, movies and their reviews. And this is episode one. Hey everybody, Shoaib here, but you can call me Show. Appropriate for movies, I think. Welcome to Houston. We have a podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thank you for coming. Houston, we have a podcast. will be produced every two weeks for your enjoyment, and show notes can be found at soundcloud.com slash Houston, we have a podcast. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter at S-N-S-A-L-L-I. That's S-N-S Alley. But that's enough of that. Let's talk some movies. Here at Mission Control, we're going to be primarily talking about movies and their reviews, but we might mix in some TV shows, some video games every now and then, but we'll primarily be focusing on movies and their reviews. And to start, we'll be focusing on blockbuster movies. We will be focusing on other ones as well, indie films, the like like that, but as it is the summer, and this is the summer of the blockbuster as it always is, we'll be focusing on that to start the podcast. And if you're wondering for a reason why, apart from the season, blockbusters these days are, in my opinion at least, made for the average person. They're not made for the hardcore fan, the movie buff. You know, they're made to appeal to as many people as possible. I get it. You know, movies are expensive. It can cost upwards of $50 if you want to go with a date or a friend. You know, you both get your tickets at $13 to $15, maybe more if it's reserved seating or if it's in 3D or VIP or what have you. Then you have to buy drinks and popcorn. You don't have to, of course, but most people do. And that's so the cinemas get make their money, right? So they want to make you... They want to entice you, I should say, to buy their concessions. But in an age where it can cost upwards of $50 for two people to go to the cinemas, not a lot of people are going to the movies. A report recently said that the average North American, which encompasses, in this case, the United States and Canada, goes to the theaters an average of four times a year, which means that they're going to see a movie maybe once every three months. As someone who goes to the movies, you know, once a week in the summer, maybe once every other week for the rest of the year, this is this is a low number to me. But you know what? I get it. People's times are valuable. Money is hard, hard earned and hard to come by for some. And when you want to just an escape, perhaps you don't necessarily want to go see some hyper-focused indie drama, you want to go see explosions and things get blown up on the big screen. So I get it. You want to have a good time, essentially. And blockbusters are made to appeal to that market. The unfortunate thing is that blockbusters seem to have been, in my opinion, very divisive as of late. And that's fueled in part, at least, by the Rotten Tomatoes score, RottenTomatoes.com, and the Tomato Meter. And so I think it's important to take a step back and kind of think about what is the tomato meter? What is it really? And and truly what it is, it's not a review itself. If you see a review for a movie, I believe last I checked, Wonder Woman, for example, is at 92%. That 92% rating merely means that 92% of people who saw the movie, critics, gave it a 6 out of 10 or higher or whatever the equivalent is, 3 out of 5 stars, what have you, 
uh, because six out of ten is the threshold for something to be considered fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So if you give a review a five out of five point five out of ten, and you post your review to the Rotten Tomatoes website, or they gather it through their aggregating system, what have you, it's not going to make the cut as a fresh review. It will be counted as a negative review, for lack of a better term, and. That's what contributes to the scores of movies, whether it's a 92% like uh, like Wonder Woman, for example, or whether it's a 28% like King Arthur. It all is based on the score that your reviews are given to movies. And if you want to know a more perhaps accurate representation of how good a movie actually is, if you actually click on the movie... So, for example, if you click on Wonder Woman, it'll take you to the specific Rotten Tomatoes page for that movie, and you'll be able to see the blank out of 10 score for any movie you so desire. That actually brings me to my next point. Sometimes what a critic writes or expresses in their reviews and what the audience thinks is not necessarily going to be in alignment. A lot of the times it is, and the job of a critic is to provide their opinion and to provide a an expert opinion, I should say, on the art form that is cinema. It seems to be the prevailing sentiment these days that the critics are wrong. You know, that the critics' opinions are asinine, they're pretentious, they're out of touch. And this seems to be more the case with these blockbuster movies, like I mentioned, and Often the audiences do not agree with the scores reviewers are giving to them, which is fair. They can be pretty divisive, as I mentioned, sometimes. Most of the time, the audience and the critics do actually align with the movie. I'm willing to bet that most people saw Wonder Woman and would give it a 6 out of 10, for example. So the 92% score for the movie is certainly warranted. But that's not always the case. We saw Batman versus Superman get absolutely roasted by the critics at the box and the box office last year it still made a decent amount of money but you know it got so many bad reviews there were people that were crying for the heads of critics that they were being paid off to write negative things about a dc movie by marvel it was just all over the place but this to show just but this just goes to show that movies are like anything else sports politics and can be just as divisive and shows that people are very passionate about the things they like, and superheroes and other kinds of movies are certainly not immune to that. We'll definitely come back to this issue at some point, that of the critics versus the audience, are the critics right, or is the audience right? Can they both be right at the same time? That's something that will always be the case. It'll, it'll always be an issue. But for now... I'd like to get to the nitty-gritty of things, the things I want to talk about, which are movie reviews. So to start, we're going to be talking about two movies that are in theaters today, Wonder Woman and the 2017 remake of The Mummy. Both movies kind of ostensibly feature women. Obviously, Wonder Woman does. It is called Wonder Woman. And The Mummy has taken a bit of a turn in reincarnating the titular character of The Mummy as a princess instead of a priest, like in the Brendan Fraser version. Those are the two movies we'll be talking about to start our inaugural episode of Houston we have a podcast with. So let's begin with Wonder Woman.
Wonder Woman is directed by Patty Jenkins, who also directed Monster back in 2003, which starred Charlize Theron, who won the Best Actress Oscar that year. So clearly, Miss Jenkins knows exactly what she is doing, and if Wonder Woman and its reception are any indication, Miss Jenkins will continue to make awesome movies going forward. I believe she's already in discussions to film Wonder Woman 2, which honestly will probably continue to be the high point of the DC Cinematic Universe. Not that the bar has been set very high up till now, but Wonder Woman, if you re- if you listen no further, it is worth your time if you haven't seen it yet. And the bar has now been set high. I could go on for the next few minutes about how awesome this movie is, how much fun it is, all the great things that happen in it. And honestly, it's so good that I could probably spend the next five to ten minutes just talking about my favorite parts in the movie and why they're so great. But honestly, that's a little boring. We all know the movie is great. It's at 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is worth your time. Like I said, that should be enough, honestly, for Wonder Woman. But I think it's important to point out some of the flaws with the film. It's not a perfect movie. I mean, what movie is really, right? So there are a few issues I had with it. One of the largest flaws, honestly, with this movie was simply that the movie very heavily relies on the whole... Diana Prince is a fish out of water. And that's not a, that's not a problem in and of itself. She obviously would be. She was born on this island. She's never left it until she meets the love interest character Steve Trevor and events of World War 1 cause her to leave the island. They let her go out into the real world. She chooses to do this on her of her own free will, despite her mother not wanting to, experiences the real world and experiences, as you might imagine, the horrors of war, the first real large war, as World War I was called, the war to end all wars. So that's what she experiences. And so, of course, it's natural that she'll experience things that they have never experienced on her island before. And they really mind this for some good comedy. They do. There are some great moments on the boat ride back to civilization between Steve and Diana. There's some great moments about the idea of sex. And there's a good line in there about men not being necessary for pleasure, but being necessary for procreation. That was a pretty uh, fun line. And a lot of the women in the audience got a big laugh out of that, as did I, truly. It was a good line. But after the comedic bits have been gotten out of the way... It's, it's a bit tiresome, and the reason for this is not because Gal Gadot does a poor job of selling me on it. It's because we have already met Diana Prince. Before this movie ever happened, before it was greenlit, or at least before it was being written and shot, the first time we meet Diana Prince is in Batman vs. Superman, and I already said that movie was not the greatest film, but it did some things right. And honestly, the highlight of that movie for me and for many others was Wonder Woman. She was great. She was calm, cool, collected. She was a badass. She wore swords in her dress. She knew about history and she showed up Bruce Wayne. She did all these really cool things in in the in the battle against the final boss, if you will, at the end of the movie. She kicked ass there's one shot where she gets thrown back across the battlefield while superman and batman are taking on the fight temporarily and she pulls out her sword and she smiles she smiles like the badass she is 
tears back into battle and just rips the enemy a new one. And that was so cool. But we saw that already. We saw that in Batman versus Superman. So it makes sense that we get to see the character or the person she was before she became Diana Prince as we know her in BVS. But maybe it's just because they already mind it for comedy that after they after they do it for the hundredth time it's not funny anymore it's not interesting anymore and that was i think to me one of the largest flaws of the movie but i understand the movie as as a whole actually is framed by as a flashback really right there's a the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie both take place in ostensibly 2017 or present day or whatever you want to call it so necessarily they did that but they probably could have lightened up on it a little more and shown her to be a little less, le- a little less, I don't know, naive, I suppose. But again, that's the point. So maybe this is just nitpicking. And, and truly, all of the flaws I'm going to bring up about Wonder Woman are exactly that. They are nitpicking because this movie was fantastic. It was great. Easily the best DC movie blows Superman out of the water, Man vs. Steel, or Man of Steel, I should say, Batman vs. Superman, and, of course, the abysmal, abysmal, awful, terrible Suicide Squad. Don't see a Suicide Squad if you have, if you have not already seen it. Two hours of your life, you're saving. Wow, that movie is so bad. But Wonder Woman is everything that Suicide Squad and Batman vs. Superman are not. It is fun, it is light, and... It has some real awesome things in it. So again, all the things we're talking about now are really just nitpicky. I get it. But, you know, not a perfect movie. I think the only other really main thing that I I kind of disliked about this movie was that at the end of the movie, we get kind of a big I love you moment between Diana and Steve Trevor, who is played by Chris Pine. And Chris Pine and Gal Gadot had absolutely fantastic chemistry. Chris Pine is really funny. He's really charismatic, and so is Gal Gadot. And you needed someone who was just as charismatic as she was in order to get her kind of love interest male lead of the movie, right? But it's a big moment at the end of the movie. Spoilers, obviously, as all these episodes will be. But there's a big moment where he kind of says, I love you. And that's kind of she remember she remembers that he said that to her because she was kind of like she couldn't hear at the moment her hearing was kind of she was dazed a little bit so she couldn't hear it and in the moment of battle in the heat of battle she recalls what he says to her one of the things being i love you and that's what kind of unlocks her power at the end of the movie she busts out of her chains and flies away and kind of bitch slaps aries across the Yes, the God of War across the uh, battlefield and then she kicks his ass and it was really cool. But that being what unlocks her power at the end of the movie kind of felt unearned, you know? This whole movie takes place over the course of what? A week, right? Two weeks, maybe, maybe two if we stretch it to, if we stretch the boat ride from Diana's Island and the travel that they do across Europe while they're trying to get to the front. You know, I... It, it just seemed like a bit of a stretch. I, I can totally believe respect between them. I can believe admiration. You know, maybe something starting there. But love, full-blown love, I love you. It just seemed a bit hammy. It seemed a bit ham-fisted considering how 
one of the largest aspects of the Wonder Woman character, and especially in this interpretation of her, is just how awesomely independent she is. And I just felt like a, a huge part of her character was just reduced by having a large part of the movie be about her relationship with Steve Trevor, with some guy. You know, I, I mean, maybe women wanted to see that. Maybe, maybe the director felt that women wanted to see that. But honestly, the best parts of this movie are when Wonder Woman is kicking ass and taking names. And it just was a bit reduced because of that final, I love you, Diana. Yeah, I don't know. It was just a bit meh, if you had to put a put a, an official term on it, of course. The last real nitpicky thing I'll talk about for Wonder Woman is the villain. And the villain, like I mentioned before, is Ares, the god of war. And the whole plot kind of is that Ares is the son of Zeus. Zeus created man. Ares was jealous. He tried, He introduced corruption and badness into the hearts of man. Zeus cast him out of heaven or Olympus, as you will. And he's been biding his time to come back. And now he's back. He is one of the causes of World War One. But as most movies do, the kind of twist, quote unquote, is that he is not necessarily responsible for the badness, the evilness in man. Man had that himself, themselves, and he just kind of stoked the fires a little bit. You know, he he didn't he didn't start the fire, but he definitely you know fanned it a little, Riff, if that makes sense. Really, my only problem with Ares was how he looked. Really, that was really the only the only thing I would complain about Ares. Maybe some of his powers were a little wonky, kind of all over the place. He seemed to be able to do anything he wanted, which is fine. But the issue I had was that he looked weird, you know. And this is no real no one's real fault. They, they what they did was that they got David Thewlis, who played Remy Lupin in Harry Potter, but you know. He just looked like himself. I thought Ares could shapeshift at the beginning of the movie, but then we see a flashback when Ares has fallen from Olympus, and it's just Thulis as like a 50-something-year-old dude looking up in anguish towards the camera, and you think to yourself, does he, does he actually look like this? You know, it seemed kind of weird. It seemed weird. And a lot of people in the audience laughed at the flashback because you expect to see this buff, jacked, awesome, badass god kind of angered. And then you just see this guy, like old dude, kind of just looking at you and you think to yourself, wow, that's super unimpressive for Ares, the god of war. Maybe I'm just corrupted by the video games where you get to do all these really cool things. But, you know, I expected more from Ares, really. I, I honestly did. Ultimately, I do want to make it clear, however, because I have said this in the review before, I know this might sound a little excessive, but Wonder Woman truly is an amazing film. I've mentioned it already, but those are just really nitpicky things with the movie. It's a fantastic film, one of the best superhero movies out there, especially in this day and age. Go see it if you haven't seen it. It is, without a doubt, worth your time. In picking our second movie of the podcast, I decided to go with The Mummy, the 2017 remake with Tom Cruise. You know, it's not exactly the world's best movie, and we'll talk about some of its many flaws, but I, th I kind of decided to go with the kind of women theme, you know, and had the, mu had the movie that The Mummy was supposed to be come out, I feel like it would have been more rewarding to talk about The Mummy, but as you'll soon hear... There were some issues that plagued the production of the movie. You know, it changed mid-production, which is never good. And we kind of got the movie that we have today. So 
Without further ado, let's talk The Mummy. Pan, pan, this is November 4, zero, niner, niner. What the hell? Those uh, dulcet tones are those of Dom, Tom Cruise, I should say. And uh, if you haven't heard that audio before, that is a brief clip. I kind of edited out some of the middle parts, which was a lot more of a ah, ah, because that is an audio clip from the IMAX trailer of The Mummy. So what essentially happened was a few months ago when they were promoting the film, if you follow IMAX, I, th- I believe it's just at IMAX, but if you follow them on Twitter... Occasionally, they'll they'll tweet out new trailers, trailers that are either shot in IMAX or meant to extol the virtues of IMAX or going to see the movie in that format. And admittedly, it looked pretty cool. But what happened was that they uploaded that trailer to the official Twitter account for the quote-unquote first look at the IMAX version of the trailer without any music or sound effects. All they uploaded was the dialogue. And so as you can hear, that this is a shot of a little harder to envision without any visuals itself. But essentially what is happening in the shot is the mummy has summoned a bunch of crows and they're about to crash into the plane. And so you hear the pilot at the beginning of the shot uh, registering the distress signal. Tom Cruise is seeing them approaching. What the hell? And then the plane kind of crashes and it's going down. And that's them being thrown all about the plane. And then you get his... His wonderful, warbly, gargled scream at the very end. And it is just, it, it is brilliant. It is one of my favorite things I ever heard Tom, Tom Cruise do, unfortunately for us. That is, it's actually not in the movie, or if it is, they really toned it down. Maybe, maybe because of the snafu with the IMAX trailer clip. Because if you look it up on YouTube now, as we all know, the internet doesn't forget anything. So you'll be able to find it pretty easily, and you'll be able to watch the full... Uh, unedited version that the the studios don't want you to see it's it's wonderfully glorious but uh with that with that in mind we will move on to the actual review but i just had to put that in there that was one of my favorite things going in to see this movie and while it wasn't necessarily in there it was still hilarious to think about it's important to recognize that first of all this is not a remake of the 1999 movie with Brendan Fraser but that both this and that movie are remakes of the 1932 film with Boris Karloff. Now I get it of course most moviegoers alive today are likely not old enough to remember the Karloff film unless you're a fan of movies made in that time period and of course there are a lot of you certainly but on average I imagine most people will think of the Fraser film it's also fun, you know, it's a it's an adventure movie, It's it has some comedic elements, has great characters, Brendan Fraser turns into a good performance. So I, I totally get the comparison for the 2017 movie to the 1999 movie, but I think it is important to remember that the original is not the Brendan Fraser movie. It is the Boris Karloff movie, and they're both remakes. So let's just remember that. Uh, however, why is this movie being remade? First of all, the primary reason is that the movie is in the public domain, like a lot of other famous things, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Dracula, all the other kind of famous movie monsters. Oddly, the only monster that's not in the public domain, the Wolfman is, but the only one that's not is the creature from the Black Lagoon, which is kind of weird, but that's probably why the creature is not going to be in the dark universe that this movie is supposed to kick off and we will get to the dark universe. But first of all, I want to talk about the idea 
that this movie had some real potential. It really, really did. There were some real creative things, and I think there is the kind of specter of those ideas in this movie, especially with the female mummy. You know, that's never been done before. Uh, the mummy was played by the awesome Sofia Boutella from Algeria. She's great. You know, you might remember her from Kingsman, the first movie. She was the character with the kind of knife legs. That was pretty cool. But unfortunately, as director, Alex Kurtzman was pretty, you know, experienced, relatively, of course, but he had worked with Tom Cruise on MI3 as a screenwriter. So Tom Cruise actually ended up taking more managerial control of the movie. And reportedly, via Variety, a piece written by Raman Setaday and Brent Lang, Cruz actually took so much control of the movie that he ended up dictating the major action sequences. He micromanaged the production to the point they actually hired two additional screenwriters to beef up his own character's part. Isn't that crazy? You know, I mean, if there's any character, I'm sorry, if there's any actor in, in the world today that does not need a part to be beefed up for him. It's Tom Cruise. You know, I can't think of a single actor alive today other than maybe Denzel Washington or The Rock who can carry a movie absolutely simply on name power. Of course, that is probably what Tom Cruise himself thought, and now the movie is tanking at the box office, so maybe that premise is gone. Maybe the star power of movies don't carry as much as they used to, but, you know, what can you do? Allegedly, the original script had the female character, the female mummy character, I should say, Princess Aminette, in more of a lead role. But Cruz's character, Nick Morton, his role was beefed up until he was essentially the lead character. I think there was a point where he wasn't a side character, but the the mummy, the titular character, as you might imagine, was the main character of the movie. But unfortunately, it was changed so that Tom Cruise essentially was the star of the film. But you know... Like I said, the movie had some potential to be good, aside from that kind of railroading by Cruise, but, you know, it was very quickly squandered. We, In my opinion, we could have gotten the story of Princess Aminette kind of in pieces, slowly learning about this resurrected mummy throughout the film, kind of getting it in pieces, you know, slow burn type thing. Uh, but instead, we learn about her entire backstory, why she did what she did, how she was cursed, how she gained her powers, how she meets the Egyptian gods, X, Y, and Z, in a quick seven-minute nice little scene at the beginning of the movie, and then it kind of happily trots on from there, narrated away. And, you know, it, it just expositioned us through one of the most important parts of the story, just to kind of hand wave it away. And then the only flashbacks we get are of Sophia Butella standing in the desert, kind of looking into Tom Cruise's eyes and whispering thoughts in his in his mind, right? And it was just so disappointing to not have the movie focus more on her. I mean, we all know about Tom Cruise. We know he's going to do cool stuff. We know he's going to be in some awesome stunts, but we don't need more of that. I would have gladly taken less Cruise and more Aminette, but unfortunately, that's not what we got. Now, another flaw is that the movie kind of, there's a moment at the beginning of the movie where it's a little offensive. Honestly, I'm a Muslim, for full disclosure, thanks to my parents, and it's been a huge part of my life. And I, I only mention this because 
When the movie fast forwards to present days, we get that kind of bit with Princess Amenet and why she does what she does, etc. Back in like 5,000 years ago or whatever in ancient Egypt. And then it, it quickly fast forwards to Mesopotamia, which is now modern day Iraq. And we see treasure hunters Tom Cruise and his sidekick slash comedic relief, Jake Johnson from New Girl. And, you know, they're in this... They're preparing to go into this kind of insurgent-controlled village. I think they were Marines or something. They were Marines that lied about an assignment so they could go treasure hunting. I don't know. Do you think that really happens in the U.S. Army? I really doubt it. But anyways, they go on this kind of rogue mission, having lied about their whereabouts, their commanding officer. And why are they doing this? Because some guy they meet before the movie told them that something called Haram, quote-unquote, is lying hidden down in the village somewhere. So Cruz, being a selfish prick, mistakes this for buried treasure. Haram is buried treasure. While Jake Johnson tells him that it means forbidden knowledge, which is, I guess, slightly more correct. What it means is it's it's an act that is forbidden by God. That's all it is. So, for example, adultery, stealing, murder, in the Muslim faith, eating pork, for example, all haram, you know? But, of course, they make fun of it, and oh, I don't know. It, I just I went into this movie with pretty low expectations, having seen the Rotten Tomatoes score and having heard my friends' opinions of seeing it. And then they started with this. They started by kind of making light of this word haram. Like They could have treated it with a little bit more respect, and I don't know. Somehow my expectations only got lower from there. Thankfully, they did not linger on it too much, but it just it just seemed to really underscore the ignorance that maybe was intended that this character is kind of such an asshole. He's so arrogant that he doesn't even bother to know the real meaning of this word. And I guess it was accurate in the end because I suppose a tomb of a forbidden evil princess who was cursed by the gods because she like murdered a bunch of people, I suppose that would be haram, but... I don't know. The just with the maybe it's just the climate we live in today. I was a little more sensitive to it than I usually would be, and I don't know. Expectations plummeted from there. Let's say that. But you know, we can't we can't talk about this movie and not talk about the dark universe. Okay, we can't because this movie was meant to be a kickoff point for kind of a cinematic universe for those aforementioned um, movie villains: Dracula, the Wolfman, the Invisible Man. Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein, and of course, The Mummy, right? And, oh my goodness, it it just is not good. That's such an understatement. It's just not good. So let, let's start with Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe was the other major star in this movie, and he appears as the good Dr. Henry Jekyll, represented orally by nice, classy English accent, you know, despite Crowe being a Kiwi. But... When he turns into Eddie Hyde, he becomes... Uh, that was a terrible accent. But when he turns into Hyde, he gains a fun a fun little Cockney English accent, you know? I don't know. Again, terrible accent. But, you know, the, the real issue, other than the kind of silliness it, it kind of shows us, is we all, all of us, everyone, knows who Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are. They are some of the most famous literary characters ever. Ever. Did we really... Do we really need to be handheld and shown who these guys are? Do we really need to be shown that Dr. Jekyll turns into Mr. Hyde? We know who they are. You know, they they hinted at it early on when uh, Jekyll kind of 
almost misses taking his potion and in 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 traditional updating for the times the potion instead of kind of drinking it out of a flask or something is in a hypodermic needle kind of injector thingy and you know he takes the he takes the injection moment passes we get a bit of a tease he kind of like growls a little bit and it was great you know it was kind of a fun tease and i thought that was, i actually thought that was pretty cool honestly but and and ha- had they left it there it would have been fine. I wouldn't even be talking about Russell Crowe. But what do we actually get? Later on, Tom Cruise prevents Russell Crowe from taking the injection because Nick Morton is an asshole. And we get a full-on fight with a trans transmogrified kind of Jekyll into Mr. Hyde, your old friend Eddie Hyde. And uh, it was really disappointing. He doesn't. He doesn't grow in size. He just kind of keels over and then when he gets back up he his eyes are a little darker and he has some veins pop out of his face and he gets a little redder and then there you go edward hyde's on the screen for a fight saying weird things in a weird accent i don't know it was just uh it was just so unnecessary and you know i think that word unnecessary kind of defines this movie in general honestly it does because a lot of the things they do are so unnecessary. For example, the female lead, whose character's name was Jenny, is introduced to us as like the, us being the audience via a joke that she slept with Cruz's character, Nick, and then she proceeds to spend the rest of the movie either saying that, I hate you, Nick, or just screaming his name over and over and over again. Nick, what are you doing? Nick, where are you? Nick, you're going to leave me. Nick, you're an asshole. And then it just flips at the end to saying, you know, Nick, I actually care about you. I care about you so much. I, I love you. You're the best. You're my you're my favorite human being. And maybe it's because I had just seen Wonder Woman, but a character like that that is so poorly written that is honestly just kind of demeaning to women with how poor poor she is because she's supposed to be an extremely intelligent archaeologist and then is just reduced to the quote-unquote love interest, right? And all, all she's there is to kind of like stroke Tom Cruise's character's ego and it was disappointing because she's supposed to be a very intelligent person, and that's what we got instead. Uh, I don't know. I was disappointed. You know, you know when you know when your dad or your parents or someone says, "I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed." That's how I feel about this movie. Honestly, I it, the ultimate sin, in my opinion, that a movie, an action movie specifically, can have is to be either forgettable or boring. And this movie was somehow both. I left the movie theater afterwards and I kind of thought to myself, was I, was I just in a movie for two and a half hours? Did I, did I watch a movie or was I just dreaming? Did I fall asleep at some point? I'm not sure. Honestly, it was kind of surreal. It was weird. Maybe that's part of the appeal. I don't know. That deals with a lot of magic, a lot of weird shit, you know? The movie was just really a lot of show and tell. And, you know, that sometimes can be a, a, show, a show instead of tell, I should say. And, you know, sometimes that can be a good thing, but... You know, when you rush through the interesting interesting parts and you show us all the boring parts, this is what you get. And, you know, with other A-listers set to join the Dark Universe cinematic experience, Javier Bardem for Frankenstein, Johnny Depp for The Invisible Man, apparently they're in talks with Angelina Jolie as a bride of Frankenstein. I heard Jennifer Lawrence and Michael Fassbender are involved, potentially, as well. You know, this big flop has got to be taken into consideration, don't you think? I would think so. Who knows, though? This this movie seems to have been plagued by a lot of other issues, and if Tom Cruise isn't the overriding presence in all of them, maybe 
you know, maybe some of them do have some hope, maybe. And, you know, if you're wondering whether or not you should go see this movie, honestly, it's probably the type of movie you can wait to come to TV or Netflix or something. And inevitably it will. But, uh, yeah, maybe give it a pass in theater. I use my scene points, so I don't feel as bad as having gone to see it. But, eh, you know, give it a give it a bit of a pass. You know, I love going to the theaters. I really do. It's so much fun. It's an experience every time. I've gone both by myself and with friends. Of course, it's more fun, I think, at least, to go see a movie with friends because you can always talk about it with them afterwards. And, you know, usually my friends and I will go see pretty much any movies, horror movies with one friend, you know, action movies with another, the Marvel movies slash superhero movies with another one, big pop culture movies with yet another friend. And I love them all dearly. And it's always a treat to discuss them the movies with my friends afterwards. And of course, that's why we, why I'm making this podcast in general. But having gone to see Wonder Woman and The Mummy in theaters pretty much back to back, it was kind of an odd experience. It's a little surreal, honestly, because Wonder Woman was so, so, so good. And The Mummy was just so not. It just wasn't, you know? So with that, having said that, I, I will go see pretty much anything in theaters, good or bad. So that kind of brings me to what we'll be reviewing uh, for the next episode, episode two. Next week, Transformers 5 comes to theaters. Say what you want, but the franchise being mindless, and I mean, it usually is, I will admit, but there is a form of entertainment in there somewhere, you know, buried under lots of CGI. But I think it's mostly focusing about being able to appreciate director Michael Bay's kind of eye for an action set piece and say what you want about the man. He knows how to direct an action movie, you know? Um, that, I think, to me at least, is the primary appeal in Transformers 5. Maybe a bit of it, too, is eking out some nostalgia. I mean, I have a Decepticon decal on my car, so I'm clearly a bit of a homer slash really ride in that nostalgia wave. Um on another note, I'm really hoping that the weird kind of like severed planet is not actually Unicron because it would be super disappointing to have Unicron represented as like some kind of cloud. You know, that was one of the main criticisms of that Fantastic Four 2 movie, The Rise of the Silver Surfer. And we thought we were going to get the badass Galacticus Galactus in it. And instead we got some kind of weird cloud, you know, same thing in the weird, awful Green Lantern movie. So, you know, really hoping that's not Unicron, but... We will be reviewing Transformers 5. And, you know, we're going to stick with the vehicles theme, for lack of a better term. And we're going to review Cars 3 by Pixar again. You know, we'll explore the vast Cars universe with Lightning McQueen's return to the racetrack. And, you know, I mean, after the abominable, awful Cars 2, it can only go up from here, right? I mean, one would hope. That's it from me for tonight, however. Yes, I record these podcasts at night. We'll be trying to come out with new episodes every two weeks, hopefully, as my schedule permits. But two weeks is the aim. And in the summer, two weeks is plenty of time for some new movies to be rolled into theaters. So keep an eye out for the next podcast episode. My name is Shoaib, but please feel free to call me Show. Everyone does. I sincerely hope you do as well. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the inaugural episode of Houston. We have a podcast. Thank you for listening. Good night.
Houston, we have a podcast.